Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Hello, DealQuest community. We're doing a solo cast this week. And the thing I want to talk about is what we call as lawyers restrictive covenants, what is often referred to as non-competes or non-competition clauses. But that term is actually often used comprehensively when there's like distinctions between non-compete, non-solicit, non-accept, non-service, things like that. This is a universal thing. Topic comes up in employment situations, et cetera. It affects deals as well. And I'm going to talk about the deal aspects of this. But the reason why it's sort of ripe right now, even though a lot of it is has been sort of evergreen, is that there's uh, proposals now for where the FTC is in a process of potentially making rules. And it's, you know, it's hit the politics, of course. And when things hit politics, there are other factors that come in that, that impact, as we know, as to whether uh, there should be restrictions put, FTC rules against what they're saying are non-competes. And I've done some research on this, and it's because it's just in the early stages and the comment and proposal stage and they don't have a full rule drafted. It, it's, it's unclear exactly everything they're trying to cover. Maybe by the time this, this airs, because I record a little in advance, there'll be more clarity on it. But I want to make some distinctions. I want to talk about the impact if the FTC did something generally, and then, and then obviously how these things tie into deals, which of course, says everybody, there's always a, a key deal to tie in because that's what this podcast is about. But let's make some distinctions up front because people use these terms very loosely and they say, oh, I, I have a non-competition, you're a non-compete. And often they don't really mean a non-compete. Sometimes they may, may mean an agreement that has a true non-compete and then other kind of non-solicitation, other things. Sometimes when they say non-compete, they really, it really is a non-solicitation. So let me draw the distinctions, okay? A non-compete or non-competition clause says that you cannot actually work at all in a particular industry maybe limited to a particular geography, but you know, it, it really is that you cannot get a job, own a company, provide services, all of you know, the way us lawyers try to cover every every potential arrangement at all in a particular profession or industry or area or sector. Okay. A non-solicit can apply to two different things. One is it can be a non-solicitation of clients, right? Customers. So if you only have a non-solicit and you don't have a non-compete, what that means is that I can go work for your competitor. I can go next door to the other bakery, right? That's a competitor of your bakery or, uh, you know, across town to the other wealth management firm in Pittsburgh when I worked at a wealth management firm in Pittsburgh, right? But I just can't solicit or take any of the clients away. Or And then there's another version of a non-solicit, which applies to employees. So if you have a non-solicitation of employees, then you can't solicit the employees, right? To, to, to leave your former employer 
to come work at your new place or elsewhere. Sometimes in the non-solicits, it also includes not just clients, but it includes prospects as well. But again, notice that distinction. Doesn't mean you can't stay in the industry. Doesn't mean you can't work for a competitor. Just means you can't solicit the business, right? Obviously, that covers often the most important thing that current employees of firms or acquirers in a deal, and we'll talk about that in a moment, care about is that protection that you're not going to leave and take the clients, but it is not as restrictive as the inability to work anywhere. And then finally, there's something that is in the middle, maybe not finally, because there's one other thing I want to talk about, but there's something that's in the middle of that, which is more restrictive and less. there's less ability to figure out strategies than a non-solicit, but it is not as restrictive as a pure non-compete. And that's something called a non-acceptance or non-service. So those two things are the same used interchangeably. And what that means is, so in a non-solicit, you cannot solicit. That means you can't ask for the business. You can't call the client up. You can't send out an email or something that's directed to try to say, hey, former customer, former client, when I used to work over here, I want you to come with me. But if it's only a non-solicit, then there is no restriction on you accepting or servicing business that comes without solicitation. So for example, let's talk, for example, in wealth management where, where we have a lot of clients or any kind of service business, it's lawyers cannot have any kind of restrictions ethically, but accounting firms, consulting firms, IT tech firms, you name it, whoever it is, right? And those kind of firms, a lot of times the relationships are very personal. So even if you cannot solicit, and we do this all the time where we set up strategies, certainly in the wealth management space, where people leave, they do not solicit, they don't actively reach out, but one, a certain percentage of clients are just going to actively reach out to them. They're going to find them. They get a lot. I mean, nowadays, obviously, it's a lot easier with online. They'll go look at their up to, updated LinkedIn profile. They can do a Google search. Well, maybe they have your personal cell phone, right? And they reach out. Well, if they do that and you only have a non solicit and you haven't done something actively directly to trigger that to them, right? Meaning reaching out to the client, um, as opposed to something like updating your LinkedIn profile and not directing an email to the client, which is usually allowed. But if you haven't done any of that and the business comes to you, you can accept it. You can service it. You're not violating, you're not solicit generally. Now, I'll usual disclaimer, there's not legal advice to anybody, including you, right? Not specifically, because these are general, general information, right? Definitely speak to your counsel if you're in that situation. So there is this other step that says, no, 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 wait, because we know in some industries, especially how easy it is to get business to come over without soliciting, we're going to put in a non-acceptance, non-service where even if you haven't solicited that business, if it comes to you, you can't take it. You can't do it. Now, it's still not a non-compete because you can still go work for someone else if you want to develop a new client base, but you you cannot even accept a service business from anybody who you had a relationship with, clients, prospects, whatever, when you were, were employed by or affiliated with, you know, and it's even tougher if you're an owner or partner in that place that you're leaving. Okay. The final thing I'll mention, and I don't know if this is going to even come up in the FTC conversation, but I mean, if they're depending on the level of restriction, sometimes you might hear something called garden leave. It was much more popular in Europe and in the UK, but it's come over here and it's growing. Still a small minority of situations, but garden leave says, hey, not only can't you solicit, you know, for example, but we're going to put you basically on the bench for a while. Now, for garden leave to be enforceable, you have to continue to pay people. But what they'll do sometimes is say, Hey, if you want to leave, what you have to do is you have to give us notice. And then for 30, 60, 90 days, whatever period of time, 120 days, whatever it is, we're going to continue to pay you. So you're still an employee of our company. But, and what, by the way, that means you have duties, what we call duties of loyalty. 
to us, which means you can't go out and try to get clients to leave and go elsewhere. And, and then only after that, can you potentially do something? Or maybe after that, you even have a non-solicitation on top of that. But what the God leave does is it puts you on the bench, meaning that not only, you know, can your former employer compete for that business, but it gives them a head start because you can't even call or speak to clients and you can't even take a job anywhere else and land anywhere else without breaching your agreement. And although you're getting paid for it, it gives the, your former firm a head start of that 30, 60, 90, 120 days, wherever it is, to try to keep the business before you, you can even talk to the clients. Okay. So those are all of the various variations. Now, in deals, it is obviously very common if somebody is selling, let's say you're selling your business or your practice or your clients or whatever the structure is to a firm, they're going to want restrictions on your ability to, you know, especially in right in service business, but even in product businesses with customer lists and things like that, you know, what wh part of what they're buying is that customer list, is that goodwill, is that relationship with the customers. And certainly in service businesses, that's almost very often there's no inventory, no products, no whatever. There's very little value beyond that. They're going to have, meaning the acquirer is going to have certain restrictive covenants. And it's very common to have non-competes and non-solicits, right, of customers and employees, but non-competes as well in those situations. Now, just because you have those various things in the agreements doesn't mean that they're enforceable everywhere against everyone. And in fact, in some states, they're a lot less enforceable than others. And in some states, like I know in California, it can even be improper even to have a restriction like a non-compete and certainly on the employee side. So now let's tie this into what's happening from what we know so far. It's not a lot with this FTC proposal, what some of the politicians are talking about. So the sort of the talking points are that it's unfair to workers to have these quote unquote non-competes that it restricts their ability, their mobility, their mobility to get better jobs, get better pay, which is you know good for the economy, it's good for workers, gives companies too much power, things like that. Okay. Now, here's the interesting part. The way the framework has generally worked in most places, it's a couple of states, California, again, being the leader in this, where they will not in enforce, not only California won't only, only not enforce non-competes, non but it won't even enforce non-solicits. It won't even allow them in, in agreements in most cases, right, for, for workers. They just decided it's against public policy. So they're more under the lines of, of what people are either hoping or fearing that the FTC is intending to do. However, even California has some exceptions to that. The biggest one applicable to this podcast is California says, no, no, wait, if you're just an employee and you leave, that's different. We're not going to enforce it. But if you're somebody who sold a business or gotten significant compensation for transferring, whether it's assets, equity, whatever it is in a business, we will enforce non-competes, non-solicits in that situation because that's not an imbalance of power. We don't need a public policy reason to protect the worker who has, who has an imbalance in negotiating ability, right, under the philosophy of why they it's against public policy for those. We don't need those protections in the case of, a, of an M&A deal, right? Or even in the case of somebody in certain situations who is a partner who owns equity, right? Because of, of the different level of sophistication, their ability to negotiate for themselves, things like that. So California has exceptions. They also have exceptions, by the way, even in terms of non-equity transfers, not non-M&A deals for employees, if their soliciting or competition is based upon taking confidential information. So California will enforce certain trade secret and 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 confidentiality and proprietary information restrictions, and they will then enforce or 
you, you could have a cause of action against an employee who uses that kind of information then to solicit and obtain business or hurt your in another way. But the trigger for that is not the solicitation itself. The trigger for that is the taking of the confidential information and then the use of that in order to improperly solicit. Okay. So, so there are carve outs there. So let's go back to the framework outside of in those states that generally are open to enforcing these provisions. In almost in every state that I'm aware of that enforces these, it is very hard to enforce a true non-compete. Again, not the colloquial phrase, the true non-compete, meaning you cannot work for someone else. Uh, because even in those states that will otherwise in certain situations enforce them and may very well enforce non-solicits, which are generally more enforceable, they look at the non-compete as something that's essentially overkill. They say, we're not going to take away somebody's livelihood. Like, you know, somebody's in a particular industry. This is what they do for a living. They're not going to solicit your clients or customers. You can't stop them from just making a living in another job somewhere. All right. They're not taking confidential information. So, the truth is a lot of what the politicians are talking about right now is already practically covered in either a state law or very often in case law that's been developed in, in almost every state around the country that does will be open, unlike California, for example, to enforce kind of restrictive covenants. For some people, they will say, we're not going to enforce a true non-compete for most workers. Now, the exceptions are often if you're an extraordinary, a special person, if you have special knowledge, you're a high-level person. You know, whether it's based upon, you know, science or particular knowledge or or just very high in the chain, there are situations where they will enforce the non-compete. But for the majority of workers, and that's really what the politicians have been talking about, that you know, it, it the non-compete is likely unenforceable. The non-solicit in most places that are open to these enforcing these will be enforced if it is reasonable in geographic scope and term. What what does that mean? That means that it, it it's not forever. And in most states, you're looking at a year, 18 months, maybe two years in connection with an employment situation. In connection with the sale of a business, you can definitely push out longer. You know, you can go five years from the deal term, plus have it be a year or two, you know, after termination of employment, if that seller has also joined you as an employee. So again, different rules there. But in general, they'll say, hey, if it's reasonable time, because there is a argument, which I believe in, that listen, you bring somebody in, you train them up, you introduce them to all your clients and customers, and is it fair for them to leave and be able to take them when you've handed them those, those relationships, for example? So there's this thing that says, hey, at some point for the first year or two, let's say, you're really going to be trading off of the relationships you developed as an employee at the firm, and we don't want you to be able to do that. After some period of time, you're not going to be able to, yeah, sure, you still have some, you know, but that relationship's been separated for a year or two. You're going to have to reestablish that relationship at that point, you're allowed to go do that. Um, in some states that will not enforce, so now this this like middle ground area where it's a non-accept, it's not service, but not a non-compete, it's different state by state. There are some states will, that will not enforce that, some states that will. And there's some states where there really hasn't been case law yet on that particular thing. On the argument that you're taking away somebody's livelihood, if you do a non-service, non-accept, that doesn't impact that. People can still go get a job, work in the industry. It's not a non-compete. So that's been the biggest argument against non-competes. So that it does not apply. But some states say, you know what? If the employee is not actively soliciting and the client wants to come with them, you shouldn't restrict them from doing that. So you got to check your state. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So going back to this FTC rule, we don't know yet what they're saying, right? The politicians are talking about the FTC wants to restrict competition, but are we really talking about or, or, or restrict the restriction on competition, right? Say that you can't have a restriction on competition. So are they really just talking about non-competes? Or are they, or are they talking about non-solicits as well? Or are they talking about non-accept, non-service? We don't know. Certainly, we haven't heard the mention of any garden leave conversation and, and whether those would be outlawed. In California, you, you can't do it, right? Um, so it's so early that it's tough to make predictions. And certainly the way, you know, when there are political factors driving something on one side or the other, I mean, obviously, listen, a lot of the employer organizations, the companies are going to come in and say, this is ridiculous. You can't, you know, not, you know, non-competes. It's unfair to us. We have training we do. We have relationships we, we, we bring in and build up and have somebody just be able to leave and take that value that we've created. It's unfair. Other people will say, no, you know, listen, there's a client choice, a customer choice argument. Say, why shouldn't customers be able to work with whoever they want with? There's a worker, you know, a pro-related argument to say, hey, you are restricting people's ability to get ahead and we want more mobility and more worker power because otherwise wages are being depressed because people have few, fewer options. Whatever happens on the political side, it, it's hard to predict. But but I think that it is likely, in my mind, and it'll be interesting to see if I'm right or wrong, that the bigger thing they're talking about is true non-competes. Because it's a harder argument, even from a political point of view, that workers should be able to also take clients and customer relationships with them and that you should absolutely restrict that. I, I think that the argument about the ability to take away somebody's livelihood is a strong argument, but that's the reason why most states will not enforce that against most workers. So you say, wait a second, Corey, why do you need an FTC rule if practically it's not enforced? Now, what the people in favor of that would say, and I've heard these words from some of the politicians already, is that these clauses have a chilling effect. So in most states, unlike in California, even if the clause is not going to be enforceable, there's no rule against actually having it in the agreement, right? So you can have a non-compete, true non-compete, you can't work anywhere else, in an agreement for low-level employee. But if the low-level employee knew, they would know that the odds of a court enforcing that, if they don't take any confidential information, are slim to none. But there's no restriction on having that agreement. So a lot of firms will put it in the agreement because it under the argument that, hey, you know, now they've got to go and 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 make the case and win an argument to say it's 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 unenforceable, which is very different than it being not not in there at all. But I've heard some of the the politicians say that these kind of clauses have a chilling effect, and frankly, where I I think that the law in most states has done a pretty good job balancing that. I think the strongest argument against these kind of provisions is that chilling effect, right? Because if you are a lower or even middle level worker who's not in a position, maybe not be as you know, as educated on this kind of stuff, which most people aren't, these distinctions and what's enforceable and it's different state by state. And 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 also the amount of money that it takes, right? If somebody tries to go in and get an injunction to stop you, right? And, and says you, or damages saying you violated the agreement, the, the what you have to do to be able to defend it, to say that this clause is unenforceable uh, in a system, by the way, where unless the agreement says otherwise, you don't, you have to cover your own legal fees, right? Unless there's a prevailing party legal fee provision in the agreement, which there may very well not be, then it does create a chilling effect. So I can see 
it being appropriate in my mind to have a rule that says that for certain level, like somebody, somebody suggested to me, well, maybe they make the distinction because this is the way practically a lot of states in their case law, and even some of the statutes that have come in a few states have made the distinction that we're saying that non-exempt workers, so people who are subject to the minimum wage and hour laws, the overtime laws, all that kind of stuff. So if you're non-executive, non-managerial, non-professional, right? Because all of those categories are, are, are exempt workers, right? They're not covered right by minimum wage laws they're not covered by overtime laws right it's not a matter of salary versus hourly that's not that's a distinction that's really without a legal difference it's a matter of whether you're an exempt or not exempt some people have suggested that maybe and i would actually go along with this that there should be a restriction of even having non-compete true non-compete not non-solicit i'm talking about non-compete provisions in in agreements for uh, non-exempt workers right because they're clearly all people who don't they're not at the management executive level they don't supervise people the lower middle level workers. And practically those provisions are not going to be enforceable against those folks anyway. So why, why not have a provision that says you can't have it in there? Because I do believe that chilling effect argument. But beyond that, it's it's a tougher you know argument in my mind. Now, do I think this is going to, even if the FTC moves forward with something, that they will move forward in a way that will adversely affect deals, let's say an M&A deal? I don't think so. I mean, even the most liberal of all states, California, right? The one that says that basically these things are against public policy, like I said, has a carve out for an M&A deal or for people with significant equity, things like that. And I've got to imagine that it would be surprising to me if the FTC went further than a state like California did. And I think they will take those those exceptions that 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 that, that the more liberal states like California have built in and at least have those protections. So I think in the M&A context, in the deal context, there's also exceptions in California. Like, for example, if it's like a business-to-business joint venture strategic alliance related thing, it, it will fall outside some of these rules. So let's say cautiously optimistic that even in a political environment where folks might be pushing for a rule to give workers more negotiating leverage or put them in a better position for mobility, that there will be carve-outs that will hopefully not affect the deal market because I don't think it should. I mean, and and that will hopefully not affect the business-to-business transactions or high-level people that are with sophisticated equity. And that will maybe just, you know, more codify what is happening in most states case law-wise and will keep non-solicits in place because I think those are fair and even non-accept non-services, right? Now, by the way, there are even carve-outs to that. Like, for example, no judge is going to prevent you from working with your family, right, if you brought them in, right? In New York, there's some case law, and this is interesting, not every state has this. In New York, there's some case law that says that if you brought in the client, so let's say you had a book of business you brought in with you, you're a wealth manager, you're a an accountant, you're somebody, a salesperson, you know, accounts at another technology sales firm or whatever it is. In some states, like in New York, they say, okay, you you can't prevent new employer people from t- bringing the relationships that somebody has brought to the firm or independently developed from with you. So there's an interesting nuance there, which there's an argument for, right? Because that's not been built on the reputation or, or you know, it was, it was established before the, the new employment, it's easiest. So that'll be an interesting area to see where it plays in. And that could obviously affect dealability, right? But even in that case, usually if somebody has had those prior relationships and sold that, right? As opposed to just become an employee, that, 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 those court cases are not going to be an exception. So I think it's a very interesting issue. I think we should monitor where the FTC is going. I think this could affect businesses generally, materially, depending upon if they're truly only talking about non-competes and whether they have those kind of carve-outs or whether they're even talking about non-solicits, like, uh, like California restricts, you know, in most cases, which would literally change the landscape. However, 
as to the topic of this podcast, the deals aspect of it, I would be shocked, and not that the government has never shocked me before, but I would be shocked if there weren't appropriate carve-outs, even in a more aggressive ruling that would have these things not affect the kind of protections we put in deals for where there's you know significant consideration being paid. And in an M&A deal, you even allocate a portion of the consideration you have to, for tax purposes, to the restrictive covenant separately from the purchase price for the other assets. Um, so I think I am, like I said, cautiously optimistic and relatively confident that anything that's put in place will hopefully not affect the deal market. And from a general entrepreneurial and business leader point of view, it's definitely something to follow just in terms of your, you know, your impact on, on, on employees and other relationships. All right, folks, till next week, Corey Kupfer signing off. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.